0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Matthew 24, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Bow with me for a word of prayer, please. Father in heaven, we want to be faithful to endure, as this text instructs us to, and help us to be faithful to endure. Give us the moral metal in our hearts to, to endure to the end. Give us the constitution inside of us to be found faithful even in the darkest trials. Help us to long to marvel at your deliverance and see the kingdom advance and see the trials and tribulations right through to the end. We pray for those among us today who don't know Christ. We pray they would believe and repent and be saved. We pray, Father, that your church would be strengthened for having heard the text of Scripture preached and you would please help me to preach with power and clarity with the anointing of God's Spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in what we call the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is teaching on top of the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem and looking at the Temple Mount. And this began in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 24, where a question was asked by the disciples, when shall these things take place in reference to the destruction of the temple? And in verse 3, and, and then in verse 4, Jesus answers them. And in answering them, he launches into a long Dialogue that continues on for quite some time, so that between verses 3 and verse 34, we have an explanation of what will precede the destruction of the temple. All of it predicts a tribulation that has now come and gone. So, the tribulation that Jesus is referring to in this section is a tribulation that has come and that has gone in 70 AD. So, Jesus predicted this before the destruction of the temple, and then the temple was destroyed. And so, we live in a time when this prophecy has been fulfilled. The church nevertheless continues to go through tribulations and trials. God remains God and sinners remain sinners, and so patterns have a tendency to repeat themselves throughout history. So we can extract from this fulfilled prophecy timeless principles that will serve us and strengthen our hearts during times of tribulation. Many are tempted to come into this text with endless speculation and sensation, but I hope you've observed so far that that is not the business of Christ. The business of Christ is to pastorally prepare the people's hearts for tribulation and trial because he wants the disciples to persevere when the tumult comes. The message essentially, as I've said several times now, is when the chips fall, and the chips will fall, don't lose your head. Keep your focus on Christ. When the world is going crazy and everybody else is losing their heads, don't lose your head. Stay focused. And in these two verses, our Lord instructs the disciples to endure tribulation and trials. So, we've already seen the tribulations and trials that they'll go through. There'll be false Christs, and there'll be wars and rumors of wars, as per verse 6. Verse 7, there'll be natural disasters and civil uprisings. Verse 9, there will be persecution, and the persecution will lead, in verse 10, to implosions and treachery within the church. And then verse 11, there will be, there will be false prophets leading people astray. In verse 12, the lawlessness of the times will lead to cold hearts in the church. So this is a time of trial and tribulation that Jesus is predicting. And we get to our text today, and it is a call to endure, stay the course. So maybe you're not in a trial right now, and maybe you are. If you are, this is for you. If you're not, this is for you too. You can put it in the bank of your mind, and you might need to make a withdrawal at some point. Because if you're not in a trial, you'll likely have one around the corner. That's the nature of this life in which we live. So store these items up as treasures to withdraw in the time that you need them. There's four points I'm going to make today. And the first point is the call to endure. Endurance is the goal. If you're in a trial, you need to endure have to endure. That's the first point. But how do you endure? How do you endure in the trial? And those are my next three points. You endure in the trial by marveling or waiting to marvel at God's great deliverance. You endure in the trial by watching to see the kingdom of God advance and you endure in the trial by remembering that all trials end. But let's talk about the trial itself and the need for endurance right away. This is the first point, endure. When you're in a trial, you must endure. This is the goal. When you find yourself in a trial, you must endure the trial. say, what's my job in the middle of this trial that I'm in? The middle of the trial that we're facing as a society, with all the tumult around us. It's this one simple concept. Endure. Endure. The text says in verse 13, but the one... Who endures? Now of course, that's in contrast to what we looked up or we looked at last week, as I noted, Many will fall away, many will betray one another, many will hate one another. Many false prophets will come, lead many astray. The love of many will grow cold. Many, 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 many will fall away, but the one who endures, tensional contrast. You have a sea of humanity, and I think especially this is speaking of a sea of humanity within the church that will fall away, but it's the one that endures to the end. The Lord uses the tumult to purify the church, to show who the true ones are, the one who endures. With all the characters in what precedes this verse in verse 13, with all the characters, That precede verse 13 the traitors, the false prophets, the ones led astray, the cold hearted. There is only one character that is commended, and the one that is commended is the one that endures. Everyone starts off well, but most don't finish well to endure. One lexicon put it to endure is to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition, stand one's ground, and hold out. It's used in a military concept or context to hold the line no matter the fire you're under. In the heat of battle, the hero at the end of the battle, the victor at the end of the battle, is the one that can hold the line no matter the threat he faces from the enemy and the attack he faces from the enemy, no matter the severity of the fire that he comes under. It is to plant your boots in the ground and dig in and not flinch when everyone else is flinching. See, the temptation in the battle is to look around at what everyone else is doing, but what we need to do is we need to look up and decide or discern what our Christ wants us to do and just do it. That's endurance. The traitors change teams. Traitors change teams. But the one who endures stays with Christ. The ones who are led astray, they change beliefs. But the one who endures maintains his focus upon Christ. The cold-hearted, well, their motivation changes. But it's the one who endures that stays focused on Christ, not the traitors, not the ones led astray, not the ones whose hearts grow cold. It is the one who endures that keeps his focus on Christ. Everyone else has lost the game because they lost their focus. You know, this text reminds me of the parable, parable of the sower in Matthew 13. The sower sows his seeds, and some seed falls along, and it's devoured by birds, and some seed falls along, and it looks like it's very promising, and it shoots right up, but it's scorched by the sun. And then some, some seed is choked up by the thorns, and then a minority of the seed actually grows and produces fruit as evidence of true conversion. And this is what Jesus is calling for here. He's calling for endurance, the production of fruit in the face of adversity. That's point one, the goal. The goal. What's your goal in your trials? Endure. Don't change. That's one way to put endurance. Don't change. Everybody else is changing. Just don't change. Endure. In the face of the trial, we concentrate on enduring. Number two, but how do we endure? How do we endure? Well, we endure, one, by waiting to marvel at God's deliverance. How do we endure? We endure by waiting to marvel at God's deliverance. Look at what it says. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, will be saved. That's a promise. Salvation in the Bible often means salvation from hell and judgment. But sometimes it simply means salvation from oppression or some type of tribulation. It means deliverance from a trial. They're related because God is the Savior in all cases, whether he's the Savior from hell and judgment or he's the Savior from Trial and tribulation, he's the Savior in all cases. So they're related. But salvation, be, to be saved, can mean different things. If I ask you, are you saved? What I'm probably asking you is, have you been born again? Are you trusting in Christ? Are your sins forgiven? But in this context, I think what it is actually talking about is to be delivered from a tribulation, from a trial. It is speaking of deliverance in this context of, destru- of the, from the destruction of Jerusalem that Christ is pro- prophesying. So, verse 3, we have the prophecy of Christ, or sorry, the disciples ask him about when the temple will be destroyed as a result of what he said in verse 2 about the destruction of the temple. And to them, in their mind, the destruction of the temple is cataclysmic because that means the destruction of Jerusalem. It means war and heartache and pain is coming. And Jesus then warns of what it's going to look like leading up to this great destruction of Jerusalem. And then he says, and the one who endures to the end will be saved. So as he's predicted all of this calamity and destruction, he is calling for the endurance of the faithful so that they can be delivered from the calamity that's coming. It's a promise. It's the promise that perseverance... Brings you to the point where you can see the deliverance of God. He's promising these people, as he's gathered the disciples around him, he's promising if you endure, you will see God's deliverance of his elect from the destruction that's coming upon Jerusalem. If you can just endure through all of these hurdles along the way, this obstacle course that the devil's put in your way, it's a promise. Historically, the believers did escape Jerusalem when everyone else was slaughtered. It's really amazing how history played out in 70 AD because when the armies came in to destroy Jerusalem, bulldoze the temple essentially, kill all the people in there, it was the true believers in Jesus Christ that escaped Jerusalem. And why did they escape Jerusalem, you might ask? Well, because Jesus told them to run when it finally happens. It says in just a little hint at next week's text, if you look down at verse 15, it says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, speaking of the temple, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus told them, when you see this sign, a sign that we'll discuss next week, blasphemy in the temple, when you see the sign, run, no matter what. And in fact, Josephus, the historian of the first century, recounts that civil leaders within Jerusalem hired false prophets at the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And the, the civil leaders hired false prophets to prophesy and tell the people not to flee Jerusalem because they didn't want their city to be weakened and they didn't want themselves to look weak. So the ones that believed the word of Jesus is opposed to the hired false prophets, the official prophets, the ones who believed the words of Christ over the hired false prophets were the ones that did indeed see the deliverance of God. They were delivered from the trial. It's amazing how God works. It's the faithful minority that are delivered from destruction. It was the case in Jerusalem. It was the case with Sodom. With Lot and his family, with the exception of his wife, who turned back and was turned into a pillar of salt. And it was, fa- it was the faithful, the minority who were faithful at the, at the flood during the time of Noah, who escaped in the ark. But if you are found amongst the minority who are faithful to Christ, you will be able to stand back in awe of what Jesus has done. But you miss that if you defect. You miss that privilege. You miss that joy. You miss the awe that will overcome and and create within your heart welling up a sense of worship. You'll miss it. You won't be part of it. The word end in verse 13 here, it says, but the one who endures to the end, it occurs also in verse 14, we'll look at in a moment, is simply referring to the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple. As John Gill, the 18th century Baptist scholar, noted, he says, it's not the end of the world, but the end of the Jewish state, the end of the city and the temple. More to come on that later. But all of this that Jesus is talking about was to be fulfilled in his generation or the generation he was speaking to. Verse 34 says that, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so as Jesus is talking about the end, he's talking about a specific end, and it's the end of Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that in a moment, and the end specifically of temple worship. But here's here's the application for you as you prepare to face trials or as you might be facing him if you can facing them if you can endure to the end of it there's an awe that comes upon you when you witness the great work of God that led you through it if you don't endure to the end you don't see the deliverance of God who were the ones that made it into the promised land after they left Egypt through the Red Sea there's two of them as far as adults go, it's Joshua and there's Caleb. They're the only ones that got to see the deliverance, the final deliverance and conquest of the promised land, were the ones that endured. If you can endure and be faithful to Jesus Christ through the trial, there is a promise that you will marvel at what he has done in it. And typically that's what happens to God's people. The ones who defect from faithfulness, the traitors, don't get to see the blessing. And that's the case here. Could you imagine? You make it all the way to 70 AD as a faithful Christian, and then all of a sudden, it really the heat intensifies like you never thought it would intensify, and at that point, just as you're about to see the deliverance of God, you defect and you miss out on it? What a terrible way to go. What a terrible way to go. In the persecutions later in Rome, you know, they had, to, they had to offer a little pinch of salt to Caesar in order to show their loyalty to the empire. And it was the faithful Christians that refused. They wouldn't do it because they didn't want to show the emperor that he was, they didn't want to communicate to the emperor that he was supreme over Christ. And then there was a group... Of Christians that they wouldn't do it, but what they did was they, they purchased forgeries of certificates that said that they did it. So they never got, they never offered the pinch to Caesar, but they got a forgery of a, of a certificate saying that they offered the pinch to Caesar. And then there was the Christians who completely defected. They offered their pinch to Caesar. Well, when the day came, Eventually, the civil government recognized that they were done, they'd done wrong, and the people were rewarded accordingly. The ones that refused to offer the pinch were rewarded the best. The ones that got the forgery were rewarded the second best, and the ones that defected and came back, they didn't get a reward. They weren't recognized. And this is the way the Lord works. If you can endure to the end of the heat when the heat is turned up, when the oven is at its highest, you will see the deliverance of God and you will marvel. And I think we've seen this to a point in our own case. Smaller trials than what these people had to go through. But if you couldn't make it through that trial, you wouldn't make it through any of these trials. And we started our own trials approximately two years ago, and for those who stayed through it, aren't you glad that you did? Aren't you glad that you got to see the work of God among us over these last two years? And to see how the Lord has provided for us, how the Lord has carried us every step of the way? Aren't you glad that you didn't defect when it got hot? And now you can look back and you can recount and you can tell your children of the provision and you can see the sinners saved and you can stand and testify to the good memories and the sanctification that you yourself have experienced through it. Aren't you glad? So put that away in your memory bank, because you might face and you likely will face and we likely will face together trials that are even hotter in days to come. And as we might even have to prepare for even hotter trials and more difficult persecutions, Remember the joy that you experienced as you endured this one. And remember what Jesus says here. It's the ones that endure to the end that will be saved. Chalk it up. The same is true in every trial you face. It'll be true in trials you face in your marriage. you face a trial in your marriage and you persevere through it and you learn to work things out and you pray that the lord leads you through and finally he leads you through the other end of the trial what happens to you but you see the blessing of god through it it always happens happen with your trials at work the, the temptation in any trial is to start grasping at something that will deliver you outside of Jesus Christ. And you say, I'm going to take it into my own hands and I'm going to do it my way, as opposed to doing it the way that Christ has commanded you to do it in Scripture. And as I told you already, in verse 16, Jesus told them that they're to wait to one specific moment, and at that specific moment in verse 16, they're to flee to the mountains. But the people that didn't listen, the people that succumbed to the false prophets, they lost out on the great blessing. And you too, as you face trials, I guarantee it, you will be tempted to manage things in the flesh with your own wisdom and forsake the wisdom of God. You will be. But see it through to the end and endure. Because then you can marvel at the work and the great deliverance and salvation of our Lord at the end of it all. We endure to the deliverance. And here's another reason we endure. Said the the command is you you got to endure, you endure to marvel at the deliverance that's on the other end of it. But you endure because of the kingdom of God. That's my third point. Because the kingdom will advance in the middle of your endurance. There's something greater than your comfort. There's something greater than momentary relief from pain or trial or pressure. There's something greater than that. And often, you don't see the greater thing until it's done. You don't see it until it's done. But there's something greater going on in the background behind all the headlines that are staring you in the eyes. And that is the kingdom of God advancing. It's beautiful to see the kingdom built. Verse 14. Look at what it says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. This is an aspect of the enduring. It's the mission of the kingdom right here. If if you're going to endure to the end, this doesn't just give us motivation to endure through trials, but this gives us what we're supposed to do. This is what endurance means. It actually means that in the face of the trial you're building the kingdom of God and you're contributing to the work of the Lord. So there's actually something good going on below the surface when everything's being blasted in your face that is negative. And what is the kingdom of God, by the way? Well, it's the manifest reign of God or Jesus Christ over all spheres of life. And this happens through the preaching of a heart-changing gospel. When Jesus uses the phrase, gospel of the kingdom, by the way, it's important to note, when he uses the phrase, gospel of the kingdom, it is a public and political attack on the Roman Empire. This is a political statement. He says, and I'm going to explain why I'm saying that, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. Why is that a political statement? Because... The word gospel in the first century did not originate with Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. The word gospel was used predominantly by the Caesars. And when a Caesar was born, there was a gospel for the empire. They had a proclamation of a gospel. We have good news that the Caesar has been born. Or, if a Caesar is replaced... There's a new Caesar that ascends the throne and now is sitting in Rome, is the dictator or king of the empire, the Caesar of the empire. There was a gospel, literally the words, a gospel was proclaimed throughout the land. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and John the Baptist shows up on the scene scene proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, it is a direct attack on the false gospels of Rome and the Caesars. So this is a political polemic. Those people who say the gospel is not political are ill-informed historically, and ill-informed as to what gospel of the kingdom means. This would have been perceived as a threat against Caesar. This is why the Jews who wanted Christ crucified accused him of treason against Rome because he was proclaiming a gospel contrary to Rome's gospel. Nothing's changed, by the way, Nothing's changed. When we opened the church, we just said we have better news than salvation from a virus. That's all we were saying, right? We have a better gospel. Nothing's changed. But before the end, Jesus is here. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. And this is the good news, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is ruling. And you can come into his kingdom... No matter how bad of a sinner you are because he gives you grace and mercy and pardon of sin and he changes your heart. That's the gospel. Look at what it says. This is where some people get caught up. It says, in this gospel of the kingdom, remember, the advancement of the kingdom is a great motivating factor as you endure trials. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. This is where some people get caught up. Say so it's going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world. This is one of the phrases that makes people think that the text is about something other than seventy A.D. Well, how could the gospel of the kingdom be proclaimed to the whole world by seventy A.D. if all of this is going to be fulfilled in seventy A.D.? How could the gospel of the kingdom be proclaimed to the whole world? There's no way it was proclaimed in North America and in, in uh, South Africa and Australia and the Far East. There's no way. How could it be that this gospel of the kingdom would be proclaimed throughout the whole world? This is a phrase that makes people think that this is a prophecy about a far different future time that is yet to come, something that wouldn't happen in that generation as Jesus said it would in verse 34. Let's talk about that for a minute because we need to discuss it. I think it's important. The phrase whole world is a phrase the lexicons agree is used to refer to the inhabited world, and specifically, in this case, to the Roman Empire. Now I'm going to show you scriptural proof of this in a moment. I'm going to show you scriptural proof of that. But you have to, before I do, you have to remember that the Roman Empire was a big world. Especially in a day when you didn't have airplanes or motors, trains. So the fastest you could get somewhere might be by boat or horseback. But you're talking about an empire that goes as far east or west as britain reaches into the middle east into the east north africa to northern europe it covers all of the mediterranean world and beyond and so that's the roman empire it was large and it was vast and it was a world the roman world was a world that consisted of multiple different ethnicities, nationalities, cultures, and languages. Because the Romans conquered much of Europe, North Africa, Middle East. The Romans did. And in doing so, they brought other kingdoms and other peoples and other languages under their rule. So this is a big world, this Roman world. But back to our text, it says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. I want to define world. I've told you I believe that it is referring to the Roman Empire. And if you look at Luke chapter 2, I'll show you where this occurs in Scripture. The same word in the Greek occurs in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 to express the Roman Empire. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be, or that the world, rather, should be registered. It's the same Greek word, world. And, and so Caesar Augustus, when he did his census in Luke chapter 2, and it says that the world should be registered, nobody comes to that text and assumes, well, he must be talking about North America, South America, South Africa, Australia. They're just, you assume that it's talking about the Roman world, because that's specifically what the... The word means. Beyond that, the, the word comes up again in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. Where it says, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the whole world, or over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. The famine there is speaking of the Roman world. It's a Roman famine that took place. But if you go beyond that, and you go all the way to Acts chapter 24, what do you find? But in verse 5, but the apostle Paul's preaching has reached the world. Acts 24 verse 5, For we have found this man a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. So Paul's preaching now, by the time you reach Acts 24, has reached the world. And even in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 5 it says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth The gospel which has come to you is indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing. So by the time you get to Colossians 1, we're told that the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. Now, the word world, to admit, in Colossians 1, Acts 11, Luke 2, it's the same word as Matthew 24 but the word world in colossians 1 is, is different but it only adds to our argument that it's different because the word world and acts are in colossians 1 is not a world a word that is technically used to refer typically to the roman empire but a world a word that is used to refer to the whole universe it's the greek word cosmos but yet the apostle in colossians 1 used that word to refer which is a more general word as opposed to the one in Matthew 24, which is more specific, referring to the Roman Empire, to refer to the advancement of the gospel over the world. happens one more time we'll look at, and that is in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, verse 8, it says, same word, cosmos here. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed where? In all the world. It's a reference to the Roman world. That's what Paul's or Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. It's a reference to the Roman world. In fact, church tradition though tells us that the gospel even went beyond the Roman world. By the during the lifetime of the apostles, so church tradition tells us that Simon the Zealot took the gospel as far as Great Britain. Well, that's within the Roman Empire, but. That's quite far west from Jerusalem. But the Apostle St. Bartholomew took the gospel to India, and he was martyred in India. So we come back to Matthew 24, and we look at this passage, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. All nations simply refers to the ethnicities within the empire And indeed, all nations did hear this gospel by the time you get to Romans 16, verse 25 and 26, which says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known where? To all nations. Has been made known to all nations. So my point is, is that by the time you get to 70 A.D., And we're looking at verse 14 here in Matthew 24, where it says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. The Bible itself testifies that this was the case on multiple fronts. And so we shouldn't come to this text and think Jesus is talking about something other than 70 AD, because first of all, it says in verse 33 of Matthew 24 that all of this will take place during this generation. And so Jesus was preparing the apostles for a specific trial, but in preparing the disciples, the apostles, for a specific trial, he was giving them actually a message of hope. You're tempted, and I'm tempted, to get caught up in all the negativity in this text, just like we're tempted to get caught up in all the negativity in this world. And, and to forget about the fact that with all the negativity in the text, Jesus actually promises that the gospel will go to the whole world. Like, think about the hindrances to the gospel at this particular point in time. Don't let this exegetical work that I just provided in the definition of the word world drown out the tone of optimism in the text. We lose the tone of optimism so quickly. You talk about the false Christs in verse 5. You talk about the wars and rumors of wars in verse 6. You talk about the natural disasters and the civil war in verse 7. You talk about the persecution in verse 9. The implosion and treachery within the church in verse 10. The false prophets leading people astray in verse 11. And the lawlessness and the cold hearts in verse 12. And your temptation when you hear all of that, if you were a first century disciple, even as your temptation might be right now, would be to say, why bother? Why bother? It's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Who cares? But that's not what Jesus says. What does he say? False Christ wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, civil wars, persecution, implosion, treachery within the church, false prophets leading people astray, lawlessness in cold hearts. And despite all this, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Don't miss that. In it all, the gospel goes forth. And so much of us in our minds and in our hearts are focused on our creaturely comforts right now. Oh, it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse because the world is getting more uncomfortable. And forget about the fact that there's a big picture, and that is that the gospel is going forth. Amidst the tumult, the gospel message goes forward even more so, the winds and the waves of the tumult likely propel it forward. The trees are popping right now outside and the flowers are opening, right? And what are they doing? They're spreading pollen into the air. But if you don't have wind blowing and rain falling, what's going to happen to that pollen? It won't multiply. In my sense from reading this and reading the Bible is that the tumult of the day, the winds and the storms of the day, are used by God to propel the gospel to the nations. So that our focus ought not be upon, primarily upon how bad the days and the times are, but on how God is using the winds and the rains and the waves to propel the gospel where he wants it to go and to perpetuate his work. And if anything is a testimony to that, it is our most recent trial. You see it in the text, and I hope you see it in our most recent trial. Faithful pastors and churches have been given a platform to showcase the gospel in a way that I've never seen before in this country, whether it's in mainstream media, newspapers, online news Whatever the case may be, the blessings have been showered upon us, and the churches that stood, for the most part, have multiplied the efforts of the gospel in a way that we could never have fathomed. We could not have fathomed that we would be having issues with trying to find everyone with a seat on Sunday morning when we entered this trial. And here we are. Right? The Lord has been kind to us, and I've... I firmly believe that if just 10% of the churches in this country had been faithful during that season, you likely would have seen revival right across the land. Right now, you see revival that's isolated to a few little places here and there, and praise the Lord for that. He's purified his church. You know, and, and you think about the news, some of you can get caught up, well, the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab and digital currency and social credit, you know, it's not just COVID, is it? It's a lot of things that are really bad that are going on. And we ought to be concerned about the, the tyranny and we ought to fight the injustice. But when it's all said and done, God is using the waves and the winds to advance the mission of the gospel. That is what its purpose is. It makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes you think, boy, will my kids have the life that I had Growing up, what of my grandchildren. But at the end of the day, our primary concern is Christians is the preaching and proclamation and heralding of the gospel and bringing souls into the kingdom of God. And over that, we are optimistic because in the face of this terrible storm that is, is proclaimed in Matthew chapter 24, the end result is, or at least the end act is, the gospel of the kingdom goes forward so that the whole world hears it. This should encourage your heart. There's something bigger than all the tumult. The kingdoms of dirt are rattling their savior, or sabers, but the kingdom of our Christ shall crush them. And his kingdom marches on. And often it is their saber rattling that is the tools that he uses to accomplish his mission. And by the way, If anything, the trials that you go through, whether it's on a micro scale or on a macro scale in your life, if they accomplish anything, they will accomplish your own personal sanctification, which is your number one objective in life anyway. Matthew Henry said so well, he said, Though the enemies of the church grow very hot and many of her friends very cool, yet the gospel shall be preached. And even then, when many fall by the sword and by flame, and many do wickedly and are corrupted by flatteries, yet then the people that died know their God shall be strengthened to do the greatest exploits of all in instructing many. This is the way it works. So, you're going to endure a trial, you have to endure the trial. Well, you marvel. You wait to marvel at God's great deliverance. You want to see how this all plays out, don't you? And, And then you want to see the kingdom advance, which it does in the face of trials, whether it's your own sanctification or the proclamation of the gospel throughout the ages or the world, rather. But then you keep in mind this one final point today, and that is that the trial ends. They always end. The trials always end. Look at what it says in 24, verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Okay? But the end's coming. 24, verse 13. But the one who endures to what? The end will be saved. It's coming. Your endurance will end. And then in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end always comes. The end of your trials will come. This word end here is used to refer, I think it's pushing back all the way to Ezekiel chapter 7, where it's talking about God's wrath upon Israel, and it says... It says, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel an end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. It's talking about the end of the temple. It's talking about the end of Jerusalem. It's talking about the end, the final end of God's judgment in that wicked city. And it finally came to an end. Eventually the end comes, and the season of judgment passes. The tribulation passes. The trial passes. And then there you are on the other side of it. If you endure the trial, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is the end will come. When does the end come? When Jesus tells it to come. You're in a trial in your life right now? When's it going to end? When Jesus says end. He says end. You look back, at Mother's Day, I woke up, said Happy Mother's Day to my wife this morning, and I said, do you remember, do you remember what Sunday looked like a year ago, last Mother's Day? <laughs> it was quite different than this Mother's Day. You know, But, it, but the, the end to the trial came. right? The end came, and it was finished, and it's so calm right now. It almost doesn't feel like ministry without the persecution. <laughs> without the stress. It almost feels like a walk in the park now. Well, the end came, and the end will come for your trial as the end will come for every other single trial. And when will the end come when Jesus tells it? To come, And so what do you do? You keep your eyes on Jesus. You endure the trial. You marvel. You wait to marvel at God's deliverance. You watch the kingdom advance. You keep your focus on that in the middle of it. And then you rest assured that when God's purposes for the trial are finally accomplished, it will end.